Welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. Glynis McNichol is a writer and co-founder of The List, a network for women from all industries who are committed to helping each other rise. And she is the author of No One Tells You This, a memoir published July 10th. It's been getting all sorts of praise from people who love her ability to get right at the heart of life's uncertainties, particularly those confronting a single woman with no children who just turned 40. Glennis has been published nearly everywhere, including the New York Times, Elle, The Daily Beast, and more. And she also served with distinction back in early June as a guest editor of the Sunday Long Read. Welcome to the podcast, Glennis. Thank you. I sound wonderful. <laughs> yes, you do. Well, you are wonderful. And uh, we're thrilled to have you here. Congratulations on the book. It's been getting incredible praise everywhere. And you did your first reading the other night at The Strand. What was that like? Uh, honestly, it was a little overwhelming. Uh, I was very lucky that a lot of people showed up. Um, it was my first time reading from my own work in public. And i been pretty calm, I have to say, about the whole publishing experience up until about five minutes before I walked out on stage. And <laughs> I had this like complete attack of nerves and just thought, oh, my God, I want to I can't do this. I must go home. But I I, I made it through it when it was wonderful. It was a great crowd. And I was uh, speaking with Amina Tussau, who is the co-host of Call Your Girlfriend podcast. And it was great. And you and you sold out of your books, which of course we, is wonderful. we did sell out of the, the books, and uh, I, that it was a really wonderful feeling. It can the news cycle we're in these days can feel a little overwhelming. So it was it was nice to know that there are other things out there that people are paying attention to. Well, congratulations. Um, we're going to talk a lot about the book um, on this podcast, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about your background. You were born outside Toronto. So you're a Canadian. Um, tell me when you were a young girl, when you first started thinking, maybe I want to be a writer someday. When I was five or six, I read the Little House in the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder books, and I promptly decided I wanted to write my own version and got a journal and proceeded to write about the very detailed, dramatic things that were happening to me as a six-year-old. <laughs> <And laughs> because I think in my head, I, it, it never occurred to me Laura Ingalls had not written those books until she was, you know, 65 years old. I thought she was writing them as she was going. So I thought I would try the same thing. It's very interesting stuff. And and as you grew up in Canada, were you, was that really your goal someday to be a published author? Yes. I think some part of me uh, always was pretty determined that I wanted to be a writer. I think that shifted from time to time. I, I worked at the racetrack, Woodbine Racetrack in Toronto during high school, and there was a period of time where I thought it might be uh, more practical to be a horse veterinarian or a racehorse veterinarian. But I tried a physics class and it was very immediately clear that that was never going to happen. And <laughs> the writing was really has been the thing I've wanted to do for, for as long as I can remember. And who were your literary heroes growing up? That's interesting. You know, I think I was probably moved more by the stories I was reading and and wanted to tell my own. So my favorite books growing up were obviously Laura Ingalls, Anne of Green Gables, the Black Stallion books, the Narnia books. Um, and and I was such a voracious reader as a child and books were so important to me that I think I just wanted to, the thing that was most important to me in the world, I wanted to also in some way try and contribute. 
Well, you certainly have. Um, you arrived in New York City at 23, and your first job was as a waitress in Greenwich Village, where you worked for years. And you decided while doing that to become a full-time writer, and you had to take a pay cut to do that. What was the thinking that went into that decision, leaving the service industry to try to, to try to become a writer in New York City? I I will talk fondly and at length, at great length, about how much I loved waiting tables. I was very fortunate um, to have the job I had and to work with the people I worked with. I'm still very close to all of them many years later. One of the women I worked with went on to become an audiobook narrator, and Simon & Schuster hired her to narrate my book, which I just love that, the full circle-ness of that. But I think, you know, it's not – I never – I didn't see it for myself as as a career choice, which it absolutely is for some people, and they make really exemplary careers out of it. And the opportunity presented itself. Uh, I moved first into book publishing and had a job for a while as a foreign rights scout. And then um, Huffington Post launched in 2005, and Rachel Sklar, who's now my business partner and obviously very good friend, I was hired by Huffington Post to run their media page, which at the time Huffington Post was two pages. It was the homepage and the media page. And she hired me to fill in, to write some entries. And I just sort of took off from there. And then you're also the founding editor of Mediate. Um, what was that like, being the founding editor of a site that you know looks so carefully at the media? I think it's important to sort of put that time period in, in context. We launched Mediate, I, you know, nine years ago last week, actually. And in that moment, the media was collapsing really uh, around us. Magazines were shutting down. People were losing their job. It was a really dark time in media. And I think people thought Dan Abrams, who was the original founder of it, uh, was crazy to be putting money into this. And so it felt overwhelming to launch a site in the middle of all of that. And we worked so hard Um I don't think any of us had a day off for about a year. We were just really working nonstop. And I think we ended up being one of the first sites to, for better or for worse, I mean, we could have that conversation, to look at cable news as a, a, a news generator, you know, clipping segments and quotes. And oh, it's, at the time, it seemed new. And in hindsight, you're just like, oh, what, a, what did we start? We didn't start it, but we definitely... Uh, propelled it to a new level. And also, I, my memory of Mediate when it was first when it first was founded was the fact that you guys actually, actually ranked media members by their influence, right? You had kind of a ranking system. Oh, yeah, well, if you ever want to launch anything, <laughs> the best way to do it is to rank a bunch of people who you want to pay attention to it. People can never get enough of that. That's right. Um, yeah, it was – I don't actually remember the thinking behind that, but that was absolutely uh, – uh, one of the the pillars of the site and it was a very immediate interesting window into how many people in the media were really eager to be ranked on it we heard we had some emails from some people you might think thought themselves above it but absolutely did not <laughs> right it was a, i'm sure it was a very good barometer of the megalomania of people in the media right um, I, I I was on it and I was thrilled. I was like, "Wow, I've I've made it! I'm on the Mediaite site. You know, I'm I'm ranked." Yeah. Here's the thing about lists, which I've come to learn since then, is they're both silly in the creation and meaningful in the publication. I have gone on to do the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for a couple of years, and while 
sort of seeing how the sausage is made, you think, does this really matter? And once you hit the publish button, the answer is it does matter. So, you know, there's both sides to that. But people definitely paid attention to us because of it. Right, for sure. Well, let's talk about your great book. Uh, The title, again, is No One Tells You This. I was really struck by the advanced praise that it got, particularly from Alyssa Mastromonaco, who's an author. And Mm -hmm. this is what uh, Alyssa says about your book. She says, Glennis has written a book that is honest, hilarious, and raw. It misses nothing. Her voice literally jumps off the page and becomes your friend, sister, caretaker, ass kicker. I just love that. And um, and, it, and it's got a lot of praise, your book, um, Glennis, in particular for its honesty and for just its frankness and bluntness about what it's like turning 40 with the choices that you made. So I'm curious, the first question I want to ask you about the book is what moment was there when you thought, okay, I want to write a deeply personal memoir of where I am right now in my life? Every time someone says deeply personal, my stomach kind of turns and I think, my God, is it really that personal? <laughs> um, <laughs> it is personal. I think I just, once I finished writing it, it was out there and I stopped I stopped thinking um, about how personal perhaps I'd made it. Um, I approached 40 with a certain amount of dread that I think is not particularly unusual just in general. I think 40 looms as a number for many of us, uh, like an important number. Uh, um, and for women in particular, because of questions around fertility and babies, it has an added meaning. And so there is this real clock women are on from a very young age where you're culturally really um, encouraged is too positive a word. It's suggested to you that if you don't have these things sort of lined up in your life, partner, marriage, babies, you have – it's – there's no chance for you after 40. Forget about it. You sort of fall off the radar. You fall off the face of the earth. You, there's, there's, there's nothing left out there for you. And I really came to 40 in, a, in sort of a last minute of panic thinking, like, am I going to wake up tomorrow just like a shriveled up person that no one talks to? <laughs> Which on the one hand sounds <laughs> can sound extreme, but on the other hand, if you look around – and all of the narratives we have around women, and I include here every advertisement, every magazine cover, all movies, almost all movies, um, there's very little to suggest that me coming to that conclusion was was not, you know, based in reality. We don't have a lot of alternative narratives for women. So I turned 40, and the reality was the exact opposite. I, I had a year that was very exhilarating and full of adventure and I felt better than I'd ever felt. And alternately, I had a very difficult year. My mother was very ill and I was uh, one of the primary caretakers and my sister was home alone with small children and I was helping her. And so the ways in which it was difficult for me and the ways in which it was amazing, I hadn't been prepared for either of them. And as the year progressed, I got increasingly resentful that I had been prepared to feel ashamed and dread my future, but had not been prepared for any level of the freedom I was enjoying or the kind of difficulties that I would confront. So at the end of that year, I've sort of joked that it was my Oprah aha moment. It was like a week before my 41st birthday. I I thought, I am a writer. And perhaps I've the year has uh, involved enough that I could turn this into the story that I have been relentlessly complaining to everyone that will listen is missing. <laughs> And, and I did. 
Oh, so it, so it was a week before you turned 41. So mm-hmm. you had this year when you decided to write the memoir. It was that moment. It was not, it was not something you had thought about as you approached 40. Oh, no. I would have taken far better notes. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, I, I have, as I said, I've kept a journal since I was six, like a very fairly comprehensive one. And that year was just a very intense one for reasons I discussed in the book. And I had no journal from that year. So not only did I didn't go into it anticipating that I was going to write about it, I wouldn't, I came out of it with no field notes other than my memory, which I'm fortunate is good. And I had a lot of people to back check it against. But yeah, it was, it was not a decision I came to until the end of it. Glennis, I was really struck at just how effective you are as a memoir writer, and this is the first time that you've done it. I know I used that phrase deeply personal earlier that you said was stomach turning, but how were you able, um, and I'm even more impressed actually with how you were able to do this by the fact that you did not have a diary and field notes, as you say. So how were you really able to go back and do that? How much did you rely on reporting and memory in reconstructing your 40th year? Well, to answer your first question, um, I've done some personal essays before, which resonated and seemed, uh, I think the first one I did, I I had burned out very badly from my media job. And I eventually wrote about it. And it felt like a it was something I hadn't done before. And it felt like a natural fit. So and it's also the kind of writing I like to read. Um, I think, how was I able I the thing about this is that you just sort of go into a whole if you're if you're lucky enough to have that kind of break from from other jobs and try and tell the truth i think as we all know who do this for a living like writing not telling the truth uh results in bad writing and (laughs) you know absolutely once you get far enough into this process and there's enough people involved in it you have an editor uh your agents you know and eventually a publicist and a marketing person like there's a lot of other people involved in this and you think it becomes a matter of i want to put out the best possible story that i'm able to and less and less a case of is this going to be deeply humiliating when people read it or how alarmed should I be? And I went, I did the added step of putting my face on the cover. And I have to say the last few days have been a little overwhelming of seeing, you know, my face in different places. Um, you know, writing, it, we live in a world where a lot of our lives are written down just in text messages and emails. And that I think uh, filled in a lot of um sort of timeline for me. And also, it was a really intense year. And so one of the it was just a lot of it was very, very fresh in my mind, my and some some of the things I'd done, I'd actually written stories about. So there's a trip to Iceland that I had actually been mm-hmm. uh, for a travel yeah. story, etc. So some of the stuff I, I had, I had a lot of details from from that moment, or Instagrams, which is not the best journal, but definitely provides some reference point. Um, but, you know, my mother was very – part of this book is about, as I said, taking care of my mother. And she actually died th- three weeks after I handed the first draft in. So the revision process was an extremely intense one. And there are chapters in this book that I wrote sort of in the moment. And I think there's an intensity to them that wouldn't otherwise be there. And on the one hand, I'm not sure that that – necessarily makes for the best writing. But on the other hand, part of what I was eventually hoping to do with this book was 
capture the messiness of this moment and the intensity of the feelings. And so hopefully by doing it so soon after I experienced it, that's somewhat there without it muddying the writing too much. Well, it it, it does. It feels raw that the writing is extremely raw and personal and emotional. And, and the word that I keep seeing in all the reviews as well is honest. So you were able absolutely to achieve that, which is remarkable. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah I man. think too, like if you're going to do this, this isn't an easy thing to do. Um, like you just want to make it worth the blood, sweat and tears. Like it would be terrible to come out the other end of all this effort and be like, oh, was I lying to myself? Was I lying to other people? Or did I not take the extra step because it's embarrassing? I once had a writing teacher I think like when I'm in my 20s sometimes and it was my first writing class and I was at the new school and he said, I know you're all nervous about reading your writing, but I promise you if you go downstairs and stand on the corner of 6th Avenue and 12th Street naked with a blowhorn and read it out loud, you'll be lucky if two people stop and pay attention to you. (laughs) And I've never forgotten that. Like you have to deserve people's attention. You really have to give them something deserving of their attention. They're taking time out of what is an increasingly, you know, hectic barrage of information life that we're leading to spend time with you. And so the question of, is it painful? Is it embarrassing? Would I rather not be broadcasting certain elements of my life sort of pale in comparison to, am I telling the best possible story that I can? Am I not wasting your time with this? Yeah, there is so much content. Um, it is overwhelming, and you have to you have to do something special. You have to do something that really breaks through all that white noise. Um, and and you've done that. Now your first chapter opens on the eve of your fortieth birthday. Um, and as the way you write about it, you say, quote, you write, quote, all that was good and interesting about me that made me a person worthy of attention considered by the world to be full of potential would be stripped away at that particular moment. So instead of uh, descending into depression, you plotted an escape and tell our <laughs> listeners what that escape was and what you ended up doing. Well, I am a, a, a junkie for a good road trip, I would say. I'll, I'll take any opportunity to have a road trip in this country. Um, I had not planned anything, though, so it was sort of impossible to do a road trip in three hours before my birthday. But fortunately, I think sometimes New York provides that uh, diversity of experience on a subway ride. So I booked a room at a motel in the Rockaways, which is way out um, – in Queens. It's a peninsula that is technically part of Queens into the ocean. And, uh, and I went out there for the night and I got there. It was off season. It was a few weeks after Labor Day. And I was the only person in the motel and there was no, um, check-in person. It's all done by, you know, a code they give you. And I just thought this is, I'm living some weird, reverse, hopefully version of like a scene from Psycho, which again, talking about the way we talk about women and female narratives and sort of travel and freedom. Oftentimes when we talk about women on the road or just, you know, moving around by themselves, we're talking about women in peril or danger. And I clearly was in neither. Um, And so I went to the Rockaways and spent the night there and went out to the beach and uh, had my birthday by myself. I was feeling rather defiant, like, well, if I'm going to be alone forever, let me just be as alone as I can possibly be. Then I woke up the next morning and I was like, I feel great. (laughs) I'm going to go to the beach this morning. (laughs) Right. You felt victorious. You felt like a total winner and this is wonderful. And that's the way you started your 40s. I love that. It's great. Mm -hmm. It's empowering. 
You know, I have to say that comes up again and again. People ask me how I feel, and I actually feel very powerful right now. That's it's uh, it's a word we don't often associate with women, and and certainly not women as they age. And it has been absolutely true for me, and I think probably true for a lot of women. And we just don't talk about it enough. Yeah, and I'm really curious to ask you about young people, um, young women, and how they have reacted um, to the book. Um, I noticed in your excerpt that you posted on Medium which I believe comes from the prologue of the mm-hmm. book, right? The Stories My Mother Gave Me is mm-hmm. the title of it, and we'll link to it with the podcast. I highly recommend it to our listeners. But you highlight there your relationship with your mother, who you connected with um, in part by the fact that she spent so much time when you were a young girl reading to you. And you mm-hmm. write that, quote, my mother spent my childhood supplying me with these literary maps of the world, close quote. I, I love that sentence. And so in writing this book and drawing up a literary map of your own, did you think about young readers, especially young women and girls who might come across your book someday and see it as a guidepost? Or was it less about that and more simply about just telling telling the best story you could and the most honest story you could? So I think I'm not attracted to prescriptive writing myself. And I really wanted to, I think, uh, one of the unfortunate fallouts of the fact we don't have a lot of stories by women about women's experiences is that when you do have one, there's this uh, sort of assumption that you're speaking for all women. And I tried to, one of the reasons I wanted to make this as personal as possible is I wanted to say, like, I'm speaking for myself. Perhaps I'm speaking to some universal themes. And I really thought of it more like, to me, entering my 40s felt like I was entering this strange no man's land. And I thought of the book as sort of a dispatch I was sending back from this place I was in being like, nothing you've heard about this is what you expect. And let me tell you what my experience is. Now, uh, I I will say in the past few days, I have heard partly from the New York Times article and also just from book events, so many young women, heard from so many young women uh, just saying thank you or you're speaking to me too, or I'm very, very anxious, or I, I face these same expectations from family around marriage and children, and I haven't known what to do. And that's really gratifying, because I obviously experienced that myself, and it's it's really difficult. Now, I will say my niece and nephew figure into a chapter of this book, and they know that they're in the book, and they're very, they're age, um, eight and seven right now and extremely resentful that they're not old enough to read the book (laughs) yet (laughs) but but they're my youngest readers or Rachel my business partner's daughter Ruby is three and a half and she also knows she's in the book but she obviously can't read yet so she just likes to wander around holding the book above her head to tell me that my face is on it and that she's in it so I do have a young readership that's pretty excited (laughs) I love that. You know, the, it, it really is striking. The book it does is not about evangelizing. It, you know, you you don't have this, as you say, this prescriptive way where you're trying to tell women to either leave their husbands, ditch their kids, or oh, anything God, no. like that. No, it's the, quite the opposite, right? It's really, as you as you say, it's a it's the field notes of your experience entering your forties and and what that's like. Did you set out? to do that, to really speak to, to young women um, and, uh, and and this feedback that you're getting? And was that was that sort of part of the goal, part of the plan here? I think my, my honest-to-goodness goal was to see my life and the lives of the women around me who are my age and that I saw were living very similar lives to me reflected back at us. Because there's quite 
perhaps your listeners can think of one, but no one has yet, a story about a single woman in her 40s. And there's almost no stories that don't end in marriage or a baby. I just really wanted all of us to have our lives reflected back to us and also the experience of being seen, which invisibility is something women cope with uh, married or not, mothers or not, after a certain age, but particularly single women, I think. There's literally there's literally no version of our life out there. And because I knew I knew so many women were living this, um, I just wanted to offer one example. I just wanted to give one story about a woman that was outside the very narrow narratives uh, that we have around women's lives. And I was very lucky that Simon & Schuster agreed to pay me to do it. <laughs> I have to say, it was a bit of a leap of faith, I think, when we sold this book. I feel very lucky. Absolutely. And do you think, let's just play a hypothetical here. Do you think that if you had proposed the book now, um, this summer, uh, with the way the country is under President Trump, that the book would have been bought? Maybe, maybe, Mm -hmm. because I Mm -hmm. think we're having we're experiencing dual narratives right now, which we sometimes forget. Um, That's another conversation about who the media chooses to cover. But um, we're experiencing, you know, the the conversation around this administration and the extraordinary pushback many women in this country are feeling uh, against their rights and a real fear that we are going to be rolling back the rights of women to pre Roe v. Wade years. And simultaneously what we're seeing is women are the power, the force behind protests and changes and uh, how many women are running for office and that we are having much more diverse, extraordinary conversations and shows. And I don't know if you've seen the net yet on Netflix, like there's just a sort of like an endless array of wonderful storytelling. And I think these two things are probably connected. Um, But so it's, we're in this really wild moment of really good and really bad at the same time. So I think it's very possible I could have sold this book now. I actually think if I, that there's probably a, more books on this topic behind me that I just haven't heard about yet. I think mm-hmm. I just happened to be lucked into the timing of being a little bit early because um, we're certainly seeing a lot more conversations around female experience than we were even to two years ago. Absolutely. And, you know, the demographics in this country uh, about um, when people get married in 1960, as I know, you know, nearly 60 percent of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 were married and that percentage had fallen to just 20% by 2011. So American women are marrying and having kids later if they're doing that at all. So a narrative about that seems, you know, like a great idea. Yeah, and I, I have to say that's one of the craziest things about this is all of the numbers back me up. But the fact that storytelling hasn't caught up with this yet, I think, speaks to who's in charge of the purse strings when it comes to storytelling. Yes, yes. completely Payments. agree with you. Absolutely, absolutely. No, that's what was so striking me. Like, really, there hasn't been a book like this yet? It's 2018. That's what I was thinking, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, yeah. and, and and that's why I think it's going to really attract a great audience, a, real, a big audience. Your because lips they're... to God's ears, Don. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Well, that's what we're rooting for. Um, Thank you. Hi- Heidi Moore is a mutual friend of ours. Um, we're both big fans of hers for many reasons. And I asked Heidi um, for her reaction um, to the book. And she says that one of the things she loves most about your book is that it passes the Bechdel test. 
Uh, the Bechtel test is a method for evaluating the portrayal of women in fiction. It asks whether a work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. And so Heidi says at no point in Glennis's book is it ever entirely about a man or two <laughs> women talking about a man. Uh, she says she mentions her relationships, but they're not central. It's a memoir of a woman as an individual, and that's very rare. And I wanted to ask you, is that something that you also set out to do in writing this book? Yeah, that's, first of all, Heidi is wonderful. And she actually just did a book event with me last night in Queens, which was really a wonderful event. Um, I'm so happy to hear that. The answer is, uh, like, news, breaking news, women actually have many conversations that aren't about men. And the fact we don't see that in our storytelling, again, goes back to who's who's paying who's paying for the storytelling. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure I consciously went out to do that. I think this book, again, was just me trying to write an uh, honest version of my own life. And that is honestly my own life is that very few of my conversations revolve around men or like the central role of men in my life. And I have to like, that's been true probably since I was 25. I think in your teens and early 20s, there was probably more conversations. Does he like me? Does he not like me? He did this, he did that. And that's like long since ceased to be the case. Women, I think as a general rule, are not terribly fascinated in the activities of men. And that fact that that's surprising to some people really... Well, surpri surprising to many men, probably, <laughs> yes. if you were to poll them. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be clear, the, the, I have I have many wonderful men in my life. Many of them are married to my friends. I'm very, you know, before when you said something about not uh, not discouraging marriage or children, like I, I benefit on a daily basis from the relationships of my married friends and their children in any number of ways and they benefit from me and I don't say that to sort of pat myself on the back but just to point out that that's a two-way street and that my friends recognize that as much as I recognize their importance and that was another thing I sort of wanted to uh, to reflect in this book was just that these relationships are so rich and fulfilling and important to everyone. Very well said. Um, I want to talk to you about travel because um, it's a big theme of your book. Um, obviously, when a woman has her own money, she's on her own. She can use the money however she wants. Um, and one of the things I think you decided to do when you turned 40 was to travel a lot more. Um, and you've traveled to a number of places in this book. But talk about travel and how important that is to you um, and what you've learned from all the travel you've done. I know you love Paris as one of your favorite places. There's a scene in the book on a cruise in France that's wonderful. Um, but how important is travel um, to you and um, as a sort of example and a symbol um, of your independence and where you get, get so much joy and fun from? So I think just to go back to the first thing you said, which is when women have their own money, women having their own money is a very new thing in the course of history. Yes. I always fall back on the anecdote that legally women couldn't get their own credit cards until 1974, which happens to be the year that I was born. So just the idea of women having their own money and being able to make decisions about what their life should and what they want their lives to look like is so new that there's we're still figuring out what that means. And we've culturally started having a lot of conversations around women and money, but we have far less conversations around what women 
and freedom is sort of how I think of it uh, Mm -hmm. looks like. For a woman traveling alone, that's really has traditionally been fraught with shame and also fear. But there's a lot of shame. I I did an interview um, with an Irish uh, national art show the other day, and and she said, "Oh well, you know, it's uh, a lot of women. It's it's difficult for women to eat alone." She said, "As as you know," and I said, "Well." I live in New York City where eating alone is a right that I hold dear to my heart and something I think of as a reward. But I also appreciate that that's not true for many women outside of New York or outside of urban areas. But it's, I think, difficult sometimes. To, like in my 30s, when I didn't have someone to travel with, I, I, there was some shame attached to that. Why are you by yourself? Is And then there's the additional, like, are you vulnerable in a bar to being approached by people, which fortunately after years of waiting tables is rarely something I have a problem dealing with. But um, so that's one part of that answer. The second part is that uh, I was really fortunate. Travel became for me uh, all the, anything that was fraught about my traveling by myself really evaporated. There was something about turning 40 that untethered me from a lot of uh, internalized expectations around coupling and aloneness. And I just began to think of solo travel as something I would not give up. And I made a joke last night at the reading that you'd have to pay me to travel with someone at this point, because I'm so used to making all of my own decisions in the moment, whenever I want. And once you get used to that, it's very, very difficult to give up. Um, and I think a lot of women are, are scared of that idea until they experience it themselves. And another thing is this, I talk a lot about in the, I talk a lot in the book about um, the lack of a blueprint for your life outside of marriage and children, that children particularly implement a decades long blueprint uh, that you sort of check off the boxes and move through. And when you don't have that, it's difficult to measure your life and, or, or there's no ritual around it. There's, it's hard to get a sense of progression sometimes. Um, and travel gives you that in such an immediate way that there's a real, like a destination, you're going somewhere and that sense of movement, which I personally, I mean, I ride my bike around New York city as a mode of transportation. I really am drawn to even just like the physical sensation of being on the move. Uh, so the fact that I got to a place where financially I had some small level of stability and that I was able to put it towards travel was just so extraordinary to me. And, I think that that's going, more, going to be more and more, I mean, who knows what anything's going to look like but in five years. But just in general, I think women, <laughs> uh, it's going to become more and more common, I hope. I mean. But travel, and travel is also, but, but before I ask you about a little bit more about travel, I want to say what you said about women and credit cards. I was stunned when I, when I found that out, that prior to mm-hmm. 1974, women had to have a man co-sign, basically get them a credit card until 1974. That's just remarkable. I was 10 in 1974. And, you know, mm-hmm. obviously the Battle of the Sexes was 1973 in September when that happened. And uh, Don, uh, the Battle know. of the Sexes is happening <laughs> as we're talking. Yes, this is true. It is not stopped. That battle is that battle is still being waged. Absolutely. Uh, for sure. Um, but getting back to travel, it strikes me listening to you talk about it, too, that, you know, travel is just 
just it's sort of a great metaphor traveling alone for being a woman alone in your forties, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's you know you're 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 embarking on something as you said. You know, there's movement, but there's also you're going to a place you have no idea what it is. It's, it's always an adventure. There's always uncertainty. There's always mishaps that occur every time you travel, and how you roll with those things that go wrong says a lot about you as a person and about your tolerance for. Um, you know, all of the screw ups that always occur when you're traveling and things that go south. Um, And, you know, having the freedom to be able to do that and embrace that, again, it gets back to what we were talking about before, which is just so striking to me about your memoir, Glennis, and that is the empowerment. You said feeling like like a superhero. Um, you know, that's, that's what, that's how you feel. That's how you have felt in your forties. And that's, and that's the incredible, empowering message of your book. And I think why it's resonating with, with so many people, particularly young women. Thank you. And I think that superhero metaphor is worth just a teeny bit of exploration. Cause one of the things, uh, I felt was that I both, I, that I had more power than I ever had had before. But, you know, as with all superhero tales, it was somewhat of a secret that it wasn't apparent to the world that I now possessed sort of this confidence and independence and was thinking of myself differently. And that in and of itself was empowering. I think I I, I have talked about this with other women before that we, our idea of what, our, our, our idea culturally of what a 40, a mid 40 year old woman looks like is no longer reflected in the reality. So I, we are all sort of moving through the world, being responded to as if we are younger than we are, but with the confidence that we have attained at this age. And that's a pretty potent uh, combination. And I felt that pretty immediately. And it was, as I say, so completely the opposite of what I'd been prepared for. Um, and that that sort of speaks to the superhero-ness of what I was talking to, like my Clark Kent. Yeah, I love it. Well, it's certainly not a secret anymore. Um, yes. <laughs> it, was, it was a well-kept secret for a that while. That gig but, is up. Yeah, the gig is up. Your photo's on the cover, and staring back at you at the Strand. I mean, you know, now it's uh, it's very, very different. Um, no, but I but I love that, and I that that's um, that's why I'm really rooting so hard uh, for your book to be a success and to and to get a lot of readers because it's just a it's a great message. I want my daughters to read it. Um, Thank you. I, my, yeah. My oldest daughter is 19, and I'm going to get her a copy. She's going off to college in the fall, and I want Isabel to read it because I just love the message. Uh, oh, well, it. thank you. Well, she's old enough to read it. I would say I would, I'm hearing from a lot of male readers, too, just FYI. This is not the worst book for Oh, and tell me what, the, m- tell me what the reaction of men uh, readers are to it. What are they saying? So I would say almost across the board it's been positive, um, and there's a lot of, I think, Generally speaking, a lot of men are uh, confused about what's happening culturally right now and not exactly sure what it all means. And so I've had a lot of and also that, you know, men, uh, I think less about them, obviously, but deal with their own cultural expectations that can be damaging and suffocating and at times deadly. Uh, So it's been a really interesting response. I get a handful of what, you know, the typical you're selfish, go get married and do you know, have a baby or whatever. But across the board, I have a lot of male readers that really, in weird ways, see themselves in this. And while as a woman, I've been forced to see myself in the narratives of men my entire life and find that completely normal. Um, I mean, my job at the racetrack during high school, which I've written about and spoke about a little bit in your newsletter, was a result of 
reading the Black Stallion books as a child, which have no women in them, uh, men are rarely encouraged to see themselves in the stories of women. And I'm hoping that changes. I think that would be an important shift. So I, uh, you know, I'm happy to have men read this. Are, are men telling you that they are feeling that the book is liberating to them or empowering as well? Are you are you getting that feedback? No, it's more like I've I have received a lot of like, oh, is this what my girlfriend is thinking? Thanks, thanks for explaining it. <laughs> is this why she doesn't want to get married and settle down? It is so fun to watch that shift, I'll tell you. Um, and a lot of a lot of you know not so much empowering, but like I see myself in some of these struggles, which is a huge compliment to get from anyone, you know, uh, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a pretty good transition about men's reactions um, to you and your choices is the lead of your New York Times excerpt. And this is this occurred, I guess, a few months before your 42nd birthday when you were out to dinner with friends and you were seated next to a well-known older male writer who I, I think is in his, was in his early 50s at the time and somebody who you admired. And t- tell our listeners about, about what happened there because I found it just so striking um, about the way men view women um, in, in, in current times still. Yes, he, he was a little bit older than his 50s, but... Um, okay, all right. Uh, very much of his generation and... Uh, I was sat beside him at a dinner following a book reading and I was on the verge of selling this book and I was quite excited about it and I was a fan of his. Um, and I, he asked me about it and I was sort of explaining to him the premise of exactly what I have said to you. Mm-hmm. So imagine just me repeating that to him. And in the middle of this, I sort of got to the end and he plunked his martini glass down on the table <laughs> and turned to me and said, Linus McNichol, you have a terrible life. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't laugh. I, I, I'm I sorry, I'm laughing. Arc, it's just, it's just no, a it's Neanderthal a, comment. I no, mean, it was, but it was also like he was so. He thought he was being so kind, and I recognized that. But also, yeah. um, p- readers of the Times piece, I think, were offended on my behalf. And it wasn't so much that I, I wasn't offended by him. I sort of marveled that I could have explained this book, and I think I'd also honestly just gotten returned from a trip to Paris, and I had mentioned that too. Like there was. And we were at a Raoul's in Soho and drinking, like I was drinking champagne. Like there was very little evidence in what was occurring or what I had said that my life was terrible. And I said something to that effect, like actually things, I'm on the verge of selling a book, like things are pretty, they're going in the right direction. And he said, no, it's awful. You're alone. And then he turned to my friends and said, do you know what a terrible life your friend has? At which point one of my friends, I think, inhaled her drink, like in a way that she started choking. (laughs) And then he insisted that uh, we wrap up his steak. It was a Raoul steak that he hadn't touched and that I take it home for leftovers, which I just, I'd said, absolutely, I will take the steak home. It is delicious. And so I got up the next morning and had steak for breakfast. And I, I joked that I was having my steak and eating it too. Yes. That's the, ki- that's the kicker to the Times piece, which I love, by the way. Excellent. Yeah. I was like, this, it, was so, it was so good, but also sort of so... It's, it, it was an anecdote that summed up in a humorous way conversations that I had that are far less humorous from people, many whom are women 10 to 15 years older than me, who absolutely refuse to believe that I could be happy. And I think implicit in that refusal is our tendency just to not believe women, you know, not believe that women know what is best for themselves. And that is, it's less that I take these things personally, although 
sometimes I want to say like, I'm not sure what it is about my life that suggests I don't know what I'm doing, but like just the idea that I, I'm not being believed that I don't know what's best for me and you're a stranger and clearly do, I think is something women confront, you know, we're in a believe women moment. That is what the Me Too moment is. And so that I, I struggle with. Well, listen, I have so enjoyed chatting with you, Glennis. I wish we had more time. I could talk with you another Thank hour you. about all this stuff. It's been great. Um, congratulations on the book. And um, I'm rooting for you for all your Thank success. You. Once, once Isabel reads it, I will let you know. Well, I'll have <laughs> Isabel write to you. and she'll Please, give you her, I would yes. love that so much. Yes, Isabel will give you her review. <laughs> and what do you have coming up uh, in promoting the book? What, what's on the, the, you know, the horizon here? Joe Piazza who has written an upcoming novel called Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win that comes out in, I think, a week. And I are going on a, a week-long Midwest tour. I feel like the Midwest has such great – they're such great readers. They have such great bookstores. Their radio stations are wonderful, and they don't get enough love. So we're headed that way. Yes, we know Joe very well. Joe is also a contributing editor of the Sunday mm-hmm. Long Read. She's guest editing actually next week. So, oh well, fantastic. Well, there you go. Yes. Yeah, we're t- we're teaming up. We're fantastic. ladies on the road. Oh, that's great. Well, you guys are going to have a mm-hmm. great time. Well, Glennis McNichol, thank you again for being here, and all the best uh, with your wonderful memoir. No one tells you this. Well, thank you so much. This was really a wonderful conversation. This has been the Sunday Long Read Podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode, and thanks again to Glennis. If you like what you just heard, please consider giving us a kind review on our podcast page at Apple iTunes. This podcast is a byproduct of the Sunday Long Read newsletter. Every Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, the best journalism of the previous week drops in your inbox. If you haven't yet subscribed, please go to www.sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe. The newsletter is free for now. Our producer today is Peter Bailey Wells, who did another wonderful job. Thank you, Peter. A special thanks to my friends Rachel Sklar and Heidi Moore for giving me incredible insight into Glennis. It was really helpful. Thank you, guys. We have great guests coming up, including Brett Michael Dykes. Finally, the Uproxx editor, he and I are going to record next weekend, so that will be dropping uh, in your phone very soon. And uh, thanks again to Glennis McNichol. We'll be back very soon with another edition of the Sunday Long Week Podcast. I'm Don Van Natta. See you soon. <laughs>